I'll tell you, it's a real joy when I sit up front, when I get to hear everybody, all the voices singing, and, uh, and then to hear you all, we all say the Lord's Prayer together. It's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be with you all today. Before we get into our text, I want us to briefly look back. We're going to do a real quick look back. This is at John 13 and 14. And if you, are, if you know that passage, we're, we're getting in the upper room. And we're with Jesus and his disciples. And in chapter 13, Jesus tells them, he says, one of you will betray me. And he looks at Peter and says, and you're going to deny me. And the room is tense and they're all anxious and nervous and there's lots of chatter. And Jesus knows this. He loves these men so much. He loves them so well. He's cared for them. He's loved them till the very end. And he gives them a word of encouragement. Listen to this at the beginning of chapter 14. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. After last week's somber text, we need encouragement. We need to hear this from Jesus. First Presbyterian, let not your hearts be troubled. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. We're about to finish Mark uh, Mark entirely. We're, we're in Mark 15. We have one more sermon next week and then we are, are done. And so I want us to think about this today. Uh, these are going to be our three points. And I'm going to frustrate you a little bit because I'm going to switch it around. So the first point is Jesus is the truth. I'm sorry that I know that's going to... He's the truth. The second point is Jesus is the way. And the third point is that Jesus is the life. Read along with me if you would. Mark 15. 33, starting in verse 33 here. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, wait, let's, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the, the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud 
and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie, saw where he was laid. Holy Spirit, be with us. Be with my stammering tongue. Be with our ears, which are hard. Be with our hearts. Soften them up. Let us receive this with joy. We pray all this in your name. Jesus, amen. There were two men. They were having an argument. So to settle that argument, they said, we have to go to a judge. Let's get a third party in here for arbitration. And so the plaintiff made his case first, and, and he was eloquent. He was persuasive. He was so convincing. And after the judge had heard him, he looked at him, he nodded, and he said, that's right. That's right. And on hearing this, the defendant jumped up. He said, wait a second, judge. You haven't heard my side of the story. You, you need to hear me first. So the judge said, okay, all right, state your case. Now he was persuasive. And he was extremely convincing. He was so eloquent. And when he finished, the judge said, that's right. That's right. The clerk of the court jumped up and said, judge, they can't both be right. And the judge looked at the clerk of the court and said, that's right. That's right. Now, we can laugh at the judge, but this is where we are in postmodern culture. This is the reality we live in. Postmodernity says your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. See, you're both right. And that leaves us as a society with no objective standard for what's right or wrong. Thus, everything is on a, a spectrum. And, and the truth is, can be bent. And, 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 you know, we don't lie. We bend the truth. We just bend the truth. And the problem is when you bend something long and hard enough, it has to break. And I think that's what we've been seeing slowly take place over the last 50 years. I love what Rod said in his prayer about the PCA. We're celebrating 50 years. And they, these were men who stood up for the truth and said, no, no, that's not right. That's not right. And we're going to do something different. And so we've been seeing this take place with all these generations over time. Slowly the truth has been eroded and now, now we're divided. We're, we're the most connected we've ever been as a world. And yet we're on, you know, we're often feeling like we're on the brink of war all the time. And it's what we've been seeing all throughout the book here of Mark is, is the truth being suppressed. That unrighteousness takes the truth of God and it suppresses it and exchanges it for a lie. As Jesus said, when you build your foundation, your house on a foundation of sand, it crumbles. And so what we have to do is we have to build our foundation upon the rock. And who's the rock? Who's the cornerstone? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And his word is our foundation. It does not move. And so if we build upon him, we will stand Secure. In our text today, what have they done? They've taken truth and they've nailed it to a cross. They've taken Jesus and they've silenced him once and for all, so they think. Let's listen to him speak. Verse 33, 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The soldiers have performed their gruesome service. The bypassers have blasphemed. The scribes have scoffed. The robbers have reviled. And now comes the darkness. And we're taken back to Egypt. This darkness is judgment. It is judgment upon our sins falling upon the Lamb of God. Hell comes to Calvary and our Savior descends into the horrors in our place. And in the midst of this supernatural midday night, the light of the world cries into the darkness. He shouts into the darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a heart-piercing cry. It's a heaven-piercing cry. And it's a hell-piercing cry. And all those who hear it mock. They're standing there and they mock him. Oh, he's calling out for Elijah. Eloi, Eloi. They think Eli, Eli. It's a play on the term. They think he's calling out for Elijah. Oh, let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see what happens. And the angels in heaven hear it and they adore. They adore at what is being done. Look at the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then all of hell hears the cry and they shudder. Because it pierces heaven and earth. It's a cry of a son clinging to the father he loves in his darkest hour. It's also the fourth statement of Jesus from the cross. And the only one that Matthew and Mark mention out of seven. Many liberal theologians, they have, have looked at this passage over the years and they said, oh, poor Jesus. You see, this is, this is what, what, what shows for his, his zeal, right? He, he got to the cross and he realized it was all a lie. And so he's on the cross and he says, this is a big mistake. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus feels forsaken because he realizes he was wrong. Poor Jesus. But is that the truth? Is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? Which one is it? Was Jesus surprised by the cross? Did he get there and all of a sudden go, what's happening? We know that's not the truth. We've read it. He's predicted it. Jesus is not having second thoughts. He's quoting scripture. This specific quote comes from Psalm 22, which we talked a lot about last week along with Isaiah 53. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, he says this about Psalm 22. It acts as a photograph of our Lord's saddest hours. It is the record of his dying words, the vessel containing his final tears, and the memorial of his expiring joys on this earth. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. And so what I tried to do last week as we were looking at the cross and the events that Jesus had to go through is I, is I put Psalm 22 here and Isaiah 53 here and we looked at the middle and you saw how it was like a script that was written hundreds of years ago playing out before their very eyes. And these, the scripture is so powerful you could find a stranger on the street And you could read either one of these and you'd say, who is this talking about? And I almost promise you they would say, well, Jesus. Jesus. That's how identical to what's going on these were prophecies from the Old Testament. And so Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22 and he's telling us something. 
Everyone who's sitting there watching is hearing him call out. And they're going, what is he saying? What is that? What's, what's going on? He's telling us, remember. Remember God's word. In the midst of, of this tragedy, go to Psalm 22. Jesus is taking the Psalm of David, which was a cry of lament. And he's saying, that's a Psalm of Jesus. That's a Psalm of what's taking place right now. Just listen to the end of Psalm 22. It says this, it says, They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And you read Psalm 22 in its context and you go, okay, he's done it. Well, what has he done? Done what? Right after that, this is verse 36, it's uh, Jesus' thirst. That's another saying that was left out that's in the other Gospels. And so they bring this sponge of sour wine. And then the sixth statement comes. And do you remember what the sixth statement is from the cross? Jesus says, it is finished. Psalm 22. He's done it. It's finished. This cry of lament is the truth. He's saying, go back. You, you, you look at me, you think, you think this is chaos? You think this is defeat? This is victory. I've done it. It's finished. Father, it's finished. I have done it. Truth has won. And you see, that's the message of the gospel. Jesus has done it. He has done it. He alone has done it. He's accomplished your salvation and my salvation through his perfect, sinless life. Through his humility, through the power of his resurrection. And now he reigns forever in heaven as our high priest and the mediator between God and man. And so now we know from Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he's done it. But Jesus' song doesn't end with Psalm 22. We go to the final statement of Jesus on the cross. What is that one? Who knows that one? Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now when he said this, he breathed his last. Well, where is he getting that? Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Do you see, Jesus is victorious. And from the cross, he's quoting the Psalms. He is singing from the cross. If you go to the Psalms, they were, they were the hymn book of the early church. And so everyone would have had these memorized. They would have sung them from birth. They would have, they would have known them. If I started going, amazing grace, how sweet. You know, secular and non-secular, everyone would join in eventually. Because you know it. You know that song. And so Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everyone watching goes to the songbook. Why is he singing? What is he doing? He starts in Psalm 22, and I think he sings all the way through 31. And if you go home today and you read those psalms, you will see them filled with messianic language. He's saying, remember, would you hear my song from the cross? This is not defeat. This is victory. And they're filled with sorrow, but they're filled with joy. They're filled with with lament, but they're filled with victory. And so in the darkest hour of his life, 
our blessed Savior singing. He's singing from the cross the song of truth. The song of the suffering Savior. He's dying for the bride He loves. And He sings that song of lament. That song of dereliction. The song of being forsaken so that we will never have to sing it. And so we might sing the song of joy and praise and adoption. Because Christ was forsaken, you can rest assured knowing you never will be. You see, God loves you. He's for you. And you can trust Him. You can take Him at His word. And while the world vacillates on truth, we stand firm on God's word, which never changes. So what do we do when we feel distant from God? What do we do when we feel forsaken by God? We should sing. (laughs) Sing. Weep. Sing. Sing in your car. Sing in the shower. Sing loud. Go before the Lord and sing and pour out tears. Read Scripture. Recall the promises of God. The Bible says all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so when you feel forsaken, Look to God's word. Sing a song of joy. Tim Keller, the pastor, writes this. He says, If you see Jesus losing the infinite love of his Father out of his infinite love for you, this will melt your hardness. No matter who you are, it will open your eyes and shatter your darkness. You will at long last be able to turn away from all those other things that are dominating your life, addicting you, drawing you away from God, Jesus Christ's darkness can dispel and destroy your own. So that in the place of hardness and darkness and death, we have tenderness and light and life. And that's the truth. Next point is Jesus as the way. This is verse 37 through 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, if you know anything about uh, the Holy of Holies, it had this massive veil in front of it. And it was sewn by all these threads and it took all these just tons and tons of men to move it. It was so heavy. Uh, Ancient you know, the, the, the early Jewish tradition says it was as thick as a man's hand. All right. Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but they're trying to tell you something about the veil. You are not to go in there. The Holy of Holies was where God's presence, his Shekinah glory dwelled. And it separated the people from him and them because you could not go in. Only the holiest man, the high priest, from the holiest nation, the Jews, could enter the Holy of Holies and only on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. That's how holy the Holy of Holies was. Nobody's in there. And even the priest had to bring a blood sacrifice as atonement for first his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And so the curtain for all time, it stood there as a keep out sign. Nobody in there. Do not come in. You cannot enter into God's presence. You had to have a mediator. And then you can imagine the fear when the earth begins to shake and the cry of our Lord goes out from Calvary and the temple is thrown into utter chaos. 
This veil, which was unterrible, is now being torn asunder. And it's being torn from top to bottom, we're told, because you have to know who did it. The Lord himself ripped it apart. God is saying, this is the end. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices has been offered, and it's accepted. The way to God is open. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, everybody is welcome into my presence. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You see, now we approach the throne of grace with confidence. We come as sons and daughters of the king. We do not come with fear or with shame. He invites us into his presence boldly. You have come today in confidence. You are sitting here. You are not obliterated. He loves you. You have entered into his kingdom through the new curtain, which is Christ. And this is so beautiful in the way Mark illustrates it. Who is the first person to come through the curtain? The centurion. The first person to come through that that curtain is a Roman. The man who is overseeing the death of Christ is the first person to gaze upon him and go, this is it. Truly, he was the son of God. And one of the other gospels says, and he gave glory to God. Truly, this man was the son of God. And even that is remarkable. Nobody up to this point, we started out, Mark, going, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Everyone's asking this question. And we come to the the middle point of Mark where Peter goes, he's the Christ. And Peter goes, nailed it. And Jesus goes, nailed it. I'm going to build the whole church on your statement. He, I'm the Christ, the Messiah. And the book of Mark starts out by saying, this is the account of the Son of God. And it's going to end with a centurion saying, truly this was the Son of God. We've come full circle. The Holy of Holies is opened. God will no longer dwell in an ark, in a place. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to find Jesus. There's coming a time, Jesus says, when you will worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's here. And I will happily tell you all that God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, still receives sinners in the same way. The thief on the cross was carried into the kingdom that day by Jesus himself. The centurion had the eyes, his scales fall off his eyes by gazing and believing in Jesus. And then we're told in Luke 23, 48, it says this, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. They go from mocking Jesus to lamenting what they've done. You see, nobody, even to this day, leaves the cross the same. Nobody leaves Jesus the same. And this is where legalism will utterly fail you. You do not get into heaven based upon your merit, but upon Christ. You do not get into heaven based on your obedience, but upon Christ. You do not get into heaven based on your righteousness, but upon Christ. He is the way, and I mean the only way. 
So we say, cast your deadly doing down. You cannot get to heaven that way. There is, there is no amount of goodness on your own part that will get you to heaven. You have to look to Christ alone for salvation. He's the truth. He's the way. And finally, he is the life. Sealed inside the tomb is the seed of life. He is life himself planted inside. And for the moment, all is quiet on Calvary. Our Savior will never again feel pain. He's in paradise. Our Lord's body is resting. Verse 42 and 43. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took, care, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, now we have this question, what will be done with Jesus' body? It can't remain there because the Sabbath is coming. You cannot work then. It has to be taken down. Someone has to bury Jesus. And this is so fitting that in the absence of Jesus' earthly father, a new Joseph should hold his son. A new Joseph should take God's son down from the cross. And so just as Simon of Cyrene carried the cross, now we have Joseph of Arimathea being raised up by God. God's provision knows no bounds. We know a little bit about Joseph here. He's a distinguished member of the Sanhedrin. This is the high council of the Jewish people. But in a truer sense, he's a disciple. He's a disciple of Jesus. Luke 23, 50 through 51 tells us a bit more. It says this. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So it tells us a little more. Joseph was a member of the council, but he was bold. And he said, no, I'm not going to consent to what you're doing. And he went boldly. He summoned his courage to go before Pilate. And you have to remember, Pilate hated the Jewish people. He, he, when they came to him and said, uh, don't write king of the Jews up on the, you know, the superscription. Can you take that down? And, and Pilate says, nope. No, I wrote what I wrote. Sorry, get over it. You know, I mean, he's petty. He's a petty guy. And so Joseph comes to him and he says, can I, can I have the body? And the remarkable thing is Pilate says, okay. Yeah, take it. So it's another testimony to the power of the gospel. It's going forth. It touches both rich and poor. It touches all people. Even in death, Jesus is still fulfilling prophecy. Again, Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He's, he's placed in the rich man's tomb. And then finally, we read this in verse 47. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. And I just, I read that and I think God bless the women of the church. <laughs> I just love, I love that Mark mentions these women have been following him and ministering to him and just caring for him so much. And they're, they're there. I mean, where are the other disciples? With the exception of John, where are, where are the others? Instead, we have these women who are bold and fearless. And they're standing there at the cross going, we want the body. Give us the body. We're going to take him. They're following the whole thing. It's just such a powerful testimony to, to, to godly women. I just, it's wonderful. Now, the question is, if Jesus is dead and buried, how on earth is this the life? 
It's because this is, this may be a massive spoiler, but the grave can't hold him. (laughs) You see, he's the life seed. And he's planted now as the first fruits. And he's the firstborn over all creation. And if he rises, that means we rise. It's impossible for death, we're told, to hold him in its clutches. He's too slippery. Life is too slippery. Death cannot hold him. And so we mock it. And we say, where's your sting? Where's your victory, death? Where is it? You've lost. Jesus won. Christians give death indigestion. The grave will spit us out one day. Every single one of us. Every single grave is a prophecy of God's final victory. Every tombstone has to be rolled away because his was rolled away. All that which is mortal and perishable will be swallowed up by life. And so Charles Spurgeon, again the pastor, he said this. He said, we have suffered bereavement after bereavement. But we're going to the land of the immortal where graves do not exist. (laughs) There are no cemeteries in heaven. (laughs) Is that not wonderful? There are no hospitals in heaven. There are no nursing homes in heaven. So many of you will be out of of professions. You'll need to find new ones (laughs) in heaven. I love that. I I don't, it's just wonderful. 1 Peter 1.3 says, By his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I want you to hear that. A living hope. Friends, how many, how many of you here today need a hope? How many in this sor- sorrowful, dark world need hope? It breaks my, my heart when I hear people say, Oh, you know... Mother Nature's acting up again. It was just dumb luck. You know, it struck again. Cruel fate has laid me low. The odds were against me. Just a series of unfortunate events. And as believers, I say, wrong. You're dead wrong. Everything you have been through in this life has meaning. You have a purpose. Your sorrow has purpose. Your your suffering has purpose. Because the tomb of Christ is empty, there is hope. It's not dead, it's living. Beloved, if you are in Christ, then here's the hope today. The cross tells us the reason behind all our suffering, and it cannot be that God does not love us. It cannot be that God does not have a plan for you. It cannot be that God has abandoned you because Christ was abandoned in your place. Our sins have been paid for, and the cross proves that he loves you. You see, the cross was the check and the empty tomb was it clearing. The payment is done. Jesus knows what it means to suffer as a real and true human being. And so as you go through this life and everything seems like chaos, where's the order? We know better. Jesus not only died the death we should have died, he lived the life we should have lived. And therefore, all are now welcomed into his glorious kingdom. The truth of God's love is proclaimed all over the world. The way to God is open. We run from the city of destruction. We say life, life, eternal life. I thank the Lord that all this evil, all this darkness is just such a small and passing thing, isn't it? 
a mere shadow. One day it will be purged and we will have life and light and high beauty for eternity and we will think on these old things no more. All that we saw was so important. All these silly little things, just vapor. We desperately need this message. We desperately need this hope. When I was a youth pastor up in Virginia, I used to tell my students, I'd say, if you're looking for the most entertaining church, this isn't it. (laughs) I'd say, if you're looking to have the most fun possible, you're in the wrong building. But if you're looking for hope, peace, beauty, and a life of meaning, you've come to the right place. And I look at all of you and anyone who would walk through these doors and I would tell you the exact same things. I don't have uh, an iPad to give out today. (laughs) I have the gospel because I know it's better. There are no gimmicks here because I know the truth is better than a lie. Christ is the way. Christ is the truth. Christ is the life. Christ is enough. We have no silver or gold, but what we have in Christ we give to you freely. It's yours. Practically, as we close, what does it mean? It means for us, all truth is God's truth. You see, he owns, he owns the monopoly on truth. It means we stand firm on the truth of God's word. We preach the whole counsel of God in season and out of season, and we preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead. That's the truth. I'm standing on it. I'll never be ashamed of it. The truth has always been unpopular, but the Bible says it will set you free. It also means that he alone is the way. Not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not Buddha, not crystals, not astrology, not your good works. Christ. Jesus alone, Christ alone is all you need. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. That's the truth. And finally, it means that life is only found here. Life can only be found in knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord. Not drugs, money, power, fame, relationships, success. Nothing else will give you life. You're wasting your life on everything other than Jesus Christ. The Bible says, for it is in him alone we live and move and have our being. And so the encouragement today is that this life is is not very long, but it's hard. (laughs) We're a vapor. And so run to Christ. Look to the cross. Leave your sin. Be saved. He's the way. He's the truth. The only truth. The only life. Run to him. Let's pray.